Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, December the 6th, 2023. Been away for a few days. We're back. Uh, happy December, everyone. End of 2023. Quite an interesting year, as all years are. Uh, more than 35 years ago, uh, Margaret Thatcher said a very famous thing to George H.W. Bush, the Saddam Hussein uh, Iraqis that invaded Kuwait. And Thatcher wanted Bush to stand up for himself, stand up for the West. And she said very famously, uh, don't go wobbly on us, uh, George. The word wobbly then has uh, gone into general description, I think, as having a moral backbone of being strong, perhaps a conservative word. Uh, but my guest today, uh, I don't think is a conservative. Ben Lerner is one of America's most distinguished writers. Um, he's the poetry editor of Harper's Magazine. And he's the author of a very interesting cover story in Harper's this uh, month, The Hoffman Wobble. It's a different way of thinking about wobbling, not in a Thatcherite, Reaganite sense of, of having moral backbone, but more a critique of our general condition. Maybe uh, for Ben, the Hoffman wobble is a description or a metaphor for uh, the wobbly situation we find ourselves in, particularly when it comes to distinguishing fact and fiction. But I don't want to speak for him. Ben is joining us from... South Brooklyn, where he lives. Ben, uh, this word wobble, are you taking it back for progressives, borrow, taking it back from, from Mrs. Thatcher? That's an interesting connection with, with the, the famous Thatcher instance. I'm more, um, I'm trying to use it kind of diagnostically to talk about a moment where, yeah, where discrepant realities and polarization and confusion over what constitutes a fact in the first place um, has made our kind of frames of reference begin to seem wobbly and indeterminate. And the piece, you know, which is itself a mixture of fact and fiction, tries to remember a first moment of real excitement um, about, about language seeming up for grabs and kind of around 2005 or 2006 and the internet when these big, this big open source vast encyclopedia first um, became so important to me and to the kind of half real, half fictional character in the story. But it also wants to track um, a movement from that moment of opportunity into the kind of contemporary fragmentation, um, which obviously is, is, is frightening and destabilizing. Yeah, it begins in 2006. As you say, it's a mix of fact and fiction. In uh, 2006, you describe yourself as being 26. I'm not sure if you were. The year before the iPhone launch, you found yourself driving across America. Um, uh, you went from, uh, I guess, New York to Berkeley, California. Is this an important date, 2006, the year before the invention of the iPhone, Ben? It, it's an important date because the piece is trying to remember from the president of ChatGPT an earlier moment of kind of techno optimism about the political uses of the internet and specifically the social possibilities 
of open source media. So the kind of young, I mean, he's around my age, but much younger than um, protagonist of the story, which is also kind of an essay. I mean, it's a mix of genres, right? Is, is, is it a moment of thinking that if we can improve the language of the internet, it will improve our political situation. If we can prominently catalog the facts about what multinational corporations are doing or what the drug lobby is doing, um, it will be a certain kind of powerful intervention um, in the political order. So I think that that was a more sustainable position insofar as it was ever sustainable in 2005 or 2006. And it's also right on the eve of this huge change in the structure of our experience, which is, of course, the development of the smartphone, because a lot of the Wikipedia entries that this young person is working on, of course, now, like Wikipedia is for a long time has been the thing that we we use to settle disagreements over points of fact in, in every space and every context as we reach for our phone and Google something and the page comes up. So it was both a kind of change in the internet's penetration into our life and also it was on the eve of that change and it was also a moment, I think, um, where somebody like me had a very different sense of the prospect of the democratization of knowledge on the internet. Yeah, it's a nice piece. Um, it's the feature piece uh, in, in Harper's uh, this month. But I wonder, Ben, um, you're a poet and a novelist, so you're skilled in mixing fact and fiction. It took me two or three reads to make sense of it. Why not just write a sharp polemic saying that uh, in 2006, there was a great deal of promise of open media and Wikipedia. And over the last almost 20 years, things have gone more and more wrong. And now we're faced with the problem of, of chat GPT. Why did you choose to mix up fact and fiction in this piece? Yeah, I mean, part of, part of it is that I want to just evoke vividly the kind of texture of experience without having to be bound to specific verifiable facts. That is just the kind of what, what I think an artist of any sort would say to that, right, is always that there was something that I could make vivid or a kind of truth that wasn't exactly documentary that I wanted to make available to a reader through the use of certain kinds of fictional techniques. But there's also a way in which like the piece is in part about, right, like the wobble of authority, of expertise, of the trustworthiness of a certain kind of knowledge. And I wanted the piece itself to enact some of that anxiety or wobbling. So it's very hard to tell um, what's fact and what's fiction in the piece in a way that I think is caught up in the question of the status of fact or fiction in the society at large. And I also am trying to address some of the ways um, that these technologies have affected writing itself and literature itself. So, you know, the, the end of the piece, the piece says, is composed actually by ChatGPT in the in the context of a piece that blurs the boundary between fact and fiction i think it's kind of unclear the degree to which that should be believed by a reader and i think the eerie situation i wanted to evoke at the end of the piece was reading this prose in which you couldn't quite tell if it was a human or a machine so that that's just like one example of a kind of anxiety or indeterminacy or wobbling on the level of the piece um that's only made possible by it blurring the boundary between fact and fiction. I don't think there would be the same experience of reading if it were if it were simply a, a journalistic polemic. We're speaking with Ben Lerner, one of America's most distinguished men of words, uh, 
also the poetry editor of Harper Magazine and the author of a, of a very intriguing new piece, uh, one of the cover stories on Harper's this month, The Hoffman Wobble, Wikipedia and the Problem of Historical Memory. As that happens, um, Ben, as I said, I just came back from uh, Barcelona uh, earlier this weekend. I did an event there with a group of artists, as well as Stephen Marcus, the Canadian writer who's making a profession out of writing about creativity and GPT. And there's a great deal of anxiety, obviously. I don't need, you don't need me to tell you that from, from the creative community about the implications of chat GPT. In terms of your essay, are you suggesting that there is a clear narrative, uh, a, a linear narrative between the birth of Wikipedia and the emergence of chat GPT in the last year or two? Not, not a clear linear narrative, but I do think uh, that ChatGPT spells the end of the dominance of something like Wikipedia, right? As it does for almost any website that's aggregative, because instead of going to the Wikipedia page, Wikipedia becomes one data set among so many that the natural language algorithms use to train themselves. So it's, it's less that I have an argument about how ChatGPT develops out of Wikipedia and more that I think that I'm writing this piece now because ChatGPT spells the kind of sunset or obsolescence or at least the demotion of Wikipedia and a whole way of using and thinking about the internet. And also what it, what it you know, one of the things that this piece is about was this funny moment where you could write kind of, if you were very quick at composing kind of bland, neutral sounding sentences, you could make these edits uh, rather effortlessly, effortlessly to Wikipedia that would then suddenly be taken up and the culture at large. And one thing we know ChatGPT can do um, as effectively or more effectively than any individual writer is generate a lot of plausible, bland, somewhat neutral sounding sentences. So the whole idea of a writer, a human writer is the ghost in the machine of Wikipedia trying to manipulate it through the composition of these passable sentences, definitely that's obsolete when there's a computer program um, that can generate as many as you as you like. So it's describing a change in the technology and also a little bit of a change in the structure of writing and also just like a change in the way we think of um, what constitutes knowledge on the internet. Ben, you say that uh, ChatGPT, and I'm quoting you, spells the end, and maybe that's... Uh, Ironic spelling the end of Wikipedia, uh, but I wonder whether it also re reflects the, and I'm trying to come up with a word here, the Wikipediaization of the world in the sense that one of the, the one of the major sources, I think, in terms of open source data on the web, one of the major sources of training for uh, large language models like chat GPT, there are many others as well, was Wikipedia itself. So in a sense, have these new AIs, have they learned to speak through the blandness of early internet platforms like Wikipedia? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I, I, you, you probably, I think you've probably had more conversations about the specifics of the chat GPT technology than I have, but I think you're making a kind of fascinating point 
which is like where what what is the genealogy of the the style or the stylishness of this chat gpt prose and i do think it it tends to mimic or ape although even ape isn't the right word anymore it, it, it does it does seem it does seem to have that kind of affective neutrality that we associate with the wikipedia style which is a kind of zero degree style it's the style of people trying to sound a whole lot of different people with different ways of writing trying to sound neutral and like they're in the inoffensive certain- right like uh, like uh, scott eckhart one of the fictional characters in your piece yeah totally so i mean i think i think that's right i mean i think that the you know part of what this piece is about is also about like like what what the young version of myself kind of gets wrong i think part of like why he's reflecting on his early effort to kind of reframe or edit or sometimes nefariously manipulate wikipedia even if for what he thinks it was a good cause like part of why he's doing that is because he has this idea that if you put something and display it prominently in Wikipedia, it's going to enter cultural consciousness. But one of the things that I think he comes to feel in this piece and that I've come to feel is that actually gets something really fundamental about the internet wrong. That is to say that like Wikipedia is really, and a lot of the internet is really antithetical to a culture of memory. Like when you put something on the internet, when you put something on Wikipedia, it doesn't enter collective consciousness so much as it stays um, in cyberspace. And so his ambition that people are going to read Wikipedia entries and really have their sense of themselves and their politics change doesn't really understand the superficiality of the hack. Like it doesn't understand how limited um, how limited Wikipedia is as a vehicle for historical memory, even if it's very effective as a kind of clearinghouse for information or as a kind of news site um, that's always undergoing rhythms of change. And I think that's what I mean to say is I think that's a question with ChatGPT too, right? Like you get a kind of different answer every time you prompt it. It's, It's in a kind of perpetual present based upon its training. And it's very unclear to me what happens to historical memory or the slow solidity of an old style encyclopedia um, against the backdrop of that kind of that kind of flux. Does it also play into perhaps the the echo chamber nature of historical memory these days? I mean, I'm sure, like everybody else, you've been following what's been going on in Israel, Gaza, and all the reactions, particularly in the United States. And there seem to be two parallel historical memories. On, on either side, and, and they don't generally interact. I mean, there have always been those, of course, yeah. even before the invention of the internet. But does the internet somehow compound um, the nature of historical memory these days, which seems to be a feature of, 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 of our echo chamber culture, and whichever echo chamber you're part of, it, it, it confirms your own particular historical memory? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the fantasy about, about the democratization of knowledge, right, was going to be we get rid of manipulative gatekeepers and be able to just settle on a, a commons of, of knowledge that was unbiased. And there are a lot of really earnest people committed to that project at Wikipedia. But in fact, what we have... And you don't like earnest people, do you, Ben? 
Well, I mean, it, de it depends. It depends on what the earnestness is in the service. Are. I'm sure most earnest people are awful. They're terrible bores, aren't they? Well, I mean, moralizing is, is terribly boring for sure. But I think that like one of the things, I mean, I, so so like to take the example of 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 like Pizzagate, right? I mean, of like of like right wing conspiracy theories. Like one of the things this piece is about is the weakness of the claim of a fact relative to these elaborate fantasies, right? Like you, like the 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 narrator of this piece thinks that if he like prominently displays on Wikipedia the fact that you know, Hillary Clinton never actually skinned a child or drank its blood or whatever, that the prominent display of an objective truth is somehow going to puncture the right-wing fantasy. But that's really not how the discourse works, right? Like, because people, but because prior to the question of fact, people are already sorted in in-groups and out-groups and nothing counts as a fact if it comes from the enemy side. So you're not going to, you're not going to convince somebody with facts that the Baroque fiction of Pizzagate is wrong. And also to the degree to which the Baroque fiction of Pizzagate is actually just a kind of allegory for the corruption of the political class, right? As characterized by the existence of people like Epstein, it has plenty of truth in it. So, so part of the point is that if you are, if, if there's a condition of polarization as extreme as the contemporary polarization, and there aren't any agreed you know, notions of expertise, the fact really loses its power relative to ideological commitments that precede the sorting of particular bits of information. I mean, and this is hardly an original idea, but this piece wants to make vivid and felt this movement from a belief that unmasking lies is gonna cure people of political delusions to understanding this much trickier problem which is that people have ideological commitments that are barriers to what they will admit as a fact or a falsehood to begin with. Are facts never wobbly? You know, the one of, part of like writing this piece, like I was reading a lot about the kind of like intellectual history of facts and the very like word, the very notion of a modern fact is really confusing. I mean, not that, that, that things aren't true or false, that historical events don't take place, but like there's this really great book by a woman named Mary Poovey that's about the weird contradictory way we use the word fact, right? Like we use the word fact sometimes to describe to like this a, a discrete event independent of any system of knowledge, right? There's there's a fact that something just like contingent and random happened. And on the other hand, we use the word fact precisely to relate something to a larger story in which those individual bits of information make sense. And now we have kind of a crisis of both things, right? We have a crisis where nobody can agree on like just like what happened in the most brute empirical sense and this in part has to do with a technological condition in which everything is so easy to simulate but also the different frameworks that we use to organize all this different information are totally incompatible and we have such discrepant realities and that's definitely the condition of the present but in certain ways i think that's that's a there's a long historical duration um, in which facts are always to a certain degree wobbly because they're always caught up in questions of power. But I don't know about what other historical moment seems as like thoroughly um, confounded as ours about what constitutes a fact. 
Well, one place to read about all this, in addition to Ben Lerner's work and particularly his, his wonderful essay, new essay in Harper's Magazine, um, The Hoffman Wobble, is uh, Liberty's Quarterly, an excellent new publication. I'm sure... Um, I, 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 I'm sure that Ben is all too familiar with it. He's probably written for it. Uh, Leon Weaseltire's new uh, quarterly, uh, and they're helping bring this high-quality content. Going to run a short feature about liberties, and then we'll be back uh, with uh, Ben Lerner to talk more about our wobbly times. Don't wobble, anyone. Stay with us for the next 30 seconds. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas, it's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are speaking with one of America's most distinguished men of letters, poet, novelist, writer, journalist, Ben Lerner, poetry editor of Harper's Magazine, and the author of a fascinating new piece uh, in Harper's called The Hoffman Wobble. I began the, the first half, um, Ben, talking about Mrs. Thatcher's advice to Ronald Reagan, have some backbone, don't go wobbly on... Saddam Hussein. Is that, in a sense, the message of your piece, not for Reagan, but for other creatives, not to get seduced by all the utopian promises of open AI? You suggest we've, we've been through this before. Language was up for grabs back in 2006. The story didn't end well then, and it won't end well now. I mean, I think it's a little more complicated than that, but I think that there's a kind of, um, you know, look, like I, I had an education in the late 1990s that in many ways um, I think would be familiar to you, right? It was very inflected by kind of postmodernist theory or post-structuralist theory. And it was a moment where a lot of people in like English departments thought we were doing something really politically useful when we unmasked um, the ideology of a text, or we were really contesting power when we changed aspects of um, dominant vocabularies or discourses or whatever. And it's not like that was all false. It's not like language doesn't matter. But part of what this piece is about is questioning whether or not unmasking was ever really that useful of a political process. Like was the problem with Exxon that we didn't really know what oil companies were doing. And if we could just get the climate impact of a company like Exxon a little bit more prominently displayed on a Wikipedia page, that was gonna combat climate change, right? I mean, like, so in many ways, what I'm saying is that there was this assumption that if we could unmask the language of power or prominently display a certain list of atrocities or environmental degradations, that that in and of itself would constitute meaningful political intervention. And I think in a lot of ways that was wrong, right? Like I think a lot of ways that the naivete of the young narrator of the story was that confusion of rearranging um, language with rearranging power relations and a society. And I think that it also, that the piece is about when that kind of 
90s optimism about ideological unmasking kind of met this techno optimism of, oh, look, now anybody can change a Wikipedia page. So suddenly there's a kind of glitch in the mainstream media matrix. And if we just get the words right in these Wikipedia pages, then we'll change the world. And I think, so, so I, I think the piece is a warning about both the kind of um, overblown claims made for a certain kind of tinkering with language and a warning against a certain kind of techno-optimism, which is like more things have been democratized and that's going to translate into more, um, into like a left politics if we all just figure out the right hack. I think it's a warning against those forms of superficial thinking about politics and technology. I don't really know what, I don't pretend to know what AI is going to mean. I mean, it's very hard for me to find any sane person who's primarily excited about it. I mean, I guess I have medical, I, I guess I have friends who are doctors who believe that. The have you talked to Marsh, Stephen Marsh? He's reasonably optimistic. I haven't. I should, I should, I should try to. Uh, he's very entertaining. Some people might be watching this, Ben, and think, oh, here's just another not so young writer becoming more conservative, suggesting that we made a mistake and rather than embracing Wikipedia, we should have stuck to our guns with the Encyclopedia Britannica. How, how would you respond to that? I don't, I don't think there's, I, um, I don't think there is any sticking to one's guns. Like, I, like in the sense that I don't think that you can um, somehow disavow the, the power of these technologies. I think that there's a, you know, so here's how the Wikipedia was built and as which has been an amazing, complicated thing. I'm not interested in it being good or bad. But one of the things the piece explores is the way Wikipedia claimed on the one hand to be an encyclopedia and then claimed on the other hand to be a news source, right? Because it's always changing as new information arises. And one of the things the piece suggests is that there's actually like a deep contradiction between those two things. That the that the slow stability, although it still undergoes change, of something like an encyclopedia is really in terrible tension with the idea of the constant seething 24 hours news cycle, the kind of amnesiac culture of endless accretion and repetition that is the news cycle. So it's not like go back to your Encyclopedia Britannica or disavow the internet. It's we should be careful about the way that we that, that we should be careful about the kind of um, faith that changing the words on a screen is changing power relations in a society. And I think that that was an error that a lot of people of my generation made. But I also, I mean, the piece is like a weird kind of artistic experiment too, right? It's not like just like a work of general cultural diagnosis. So I'm, I'm kind of like hesitant to make big pronouncements. But I do think I, I do think it really like it gets at this problem with the internet that a lot of very smart people have thought about, which is that we're kind of offloading our memory to this thing um, that that is less good at kind of preserving the truth and better at kind of colonizing our life with this 24 hour um, you know drip of information. Yeah, I took the cheek, Ben, of uh, going to, uh, ch sorry, chat GPT and asking it about you. I, I asked, uh, does Ben learn a wobble? 
Um, and of course, the answer was very bland. It, Chat GPT says, the question of whether Ben Lerner wobbles is subjective and open to interpretation. Uh, blah, blah. Um, uh, it, 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 it doesn't respond. It doesn't take a position. Is that, do you think, the problem with Chat GPT is it's very shy? It's, it's not so much going back to the period before... Um, before uh, the beginning of the internet, it's a return to something odder, something even more troubling. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the chat GPT is troubling and astounding in all kinds of ways. I think for me as a writer, what's interesting about it is it's, it is this weird mix of it seeming like the most incredible technological innovation imaginable on the one hand, and then also seeming like, but it's all that power harnessed for the generation of really mediocre sentences. So it's this like we bizarre mix of like singularity and mediocrity, right? I mean, I thought there was a really good piece that Michael Clune wrote about, you know how all the English professors are freaked out because like students yeah. use chat GPT to write their papers. And Clune's point was just like, that's not really a technological crisis, that's like a crisis in the quality of writing. That's like a crisis um, in the fact that the bland mediocrity of ChatGPT right now passes as acceptable academic work and that there's not enough, that the classroom isn't producing um, specifically human enough, innovative, localized, fresh thinking that can be told apart from the generation of the machine. So on the, on the one hand, I mean, my ambivalence about it in terms of writing is that I'm both like astounded and kind of put to sleep um, by the language that it that it generates. But I also think like it is getting so good and so fast um, that I think ChatGPT is already capable of writing all kinds of sentences that for most people are hard to sort from pretty competent literary prose. So like one of the funny things about this piece is that I, I give the last word to ChatGPT, although like I said, you know, the degree to which you believe that that's ChatGPT is, is, is kind of destabilized or right. yeah. But But I, I just want to say that like I've gotten, I've gotten lots of comments that either say the prose at the very end that you claim is ChatGPT is way too good to be ChatGPT, that must be you. And then I get a lot of, um, I've gotten several emails from people saying that's really horrifying that chat GPT section. It, it starts to sound like human literary composition, but it's so bad. That is to say like, just a like, part of why I ended the piece in that way is to raise the question of how already it can be very hard to, 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 to stabilize the wobble between human and artificial composition, um, even within one, one piece. So Ben, in these wobbly times, what should artists do? As I said, I came back from Barcelona with doing a series of events in at European museums, addressing a kind of manifesto or trying to put together a manifesto for creatives, artists, writers, uh, musicians on, on what to do. Manifesto might be the wrong word, but um, are there suggestions in the book, uh, in the piece, in the Hoffman Wobble about what creatives should and shouldn't do, as you've already suggested, you've 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 argued that shouldn't fall in love with the promise of technology undermining traditional power relations. But what about on a more positive note? Does it suggest we should work with these 
with these, uh, I don't know what you call them, bots, platforms, yeah. algorithms. Uh, Stephen Marsh thinks so, and he's already he came out with a book in which he worked with the algorithm, and he and he published a, a, a murder mystery uh, in association with Malcolm Gladwell that's done quite well. Right. I mean, I think <laughs> I don't think that the piece has practical advice. I think that the, I I hope that the piece reminds us that literature is actually a great space for thinking about how new technologies are changing the structure of our experience. That, that, that prose and fiction and um, traditional literary genres are important in part because they give us a certain kind of perspective on these new developments that are so affecting our sense of language and writing. Like that, like I, I believe actually in the power of old technologies, like certain writers, like the ones you're mentioning, really want to collaborate with ChatGPT or want to think of, like want their writing to be indistinguishable from the new technologies. I think it's useful to think about how old forms like the novel or the essay might actually give us a certain kind of critical distance on what's happening to our media and language now. But I, I would also say that, I mean, you, you know, one of the things that's in this piece a lot, right, is just the degree to which our lives are colonized by the blue light of the screen. And maybe this sounds conservative, I guess, but but I think that one of the important things that the arts do and that artists can do is model other modes of attention than the endless point and click um, and the movement towards like in the flattening of content that the algorithm produces. So there are a lot of very brilliant people right now, like B. Graham Burnett, I think of as one thinker who are talking about attention sanctuaries, right? Who are talking about, look, like we live in a moment in which with no historical precedent, a lot of the smartest people and the most powerful corporations are capturing, dividing and monetizing our attention. Um, with a speed and on a scale, you know, that's like that, that would have been unimaginable only a few years ago. What, what might um, literature or the arts offer that's a different kind of sustained attention? That's a different kind of being together or attending together than those modes of capture and monetization and distraction. And so one of the things this piece thinks about is how, um, this young artist's early enthusiasm for Wikipedia or his kind of total devotion of his literary imagination to the online was losing sight of um, the importance of literature and the arts as spaces of attention that are other to the internet, other to chat GPT, other to the various kinds of algorithms. And that's not a claim, the claim is not that a poem or a work of fiction or whatever is gonna somehow solve the climate crisis. It's that attention is a human capacity which is worth defending. And that if we get too obsessed with kind of hacks and new technologies and are in too much of a hurry to conflate our literary enterprises with those new developments, we might be losing sight of specific human capacities and resources that need to be cultivated and protected yeah and I, i'm sure in that sense just as harper's is online but they're not aggressively online liberties is focused on 
self-publishing. Uh, it has a website, but not much else. So you're in favor of that sort of thing. What do you think, um, Ben, of these writers who are suing OpenAI for stealing their content? Uh, I mean, I, it, insofar as it's a protest, um, insofar as it's a way to try to stop the colonization of everything by open AI, insofar as it's an attempt to say, um, the, the, you know, the, 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 these things need to be regulated in the service of a public good and not just become another runaway profit machine. I think they're great. I'm personally less interested in like uh, the, the property dimension of it, right? I mean, I, I, think, I, think it's, I think it's great as a way to demand the regulation of something that obviously has profound social implications um, I haven't thought very, like, I'm not really worried about like chat GPT reading my books and stealing some of my phrases or whatever. Finally, Ben, uh, as I said, I really enjoyed the piece, uh, the Hoffman wobble, part fact, part fiction, part polemic, part nostalgia. Seems to me you ended with chat GPT, but you didn't begin with chat BT, the Hoffman wobble. Again, maybe I'm overreading it or misreading it, but it seems to be a piece by you in part, at least quite nostalgic for uh, a more youthful period of driving across America. We've all done that of Berkeley in the early 21st century. Um, do you think these artificial intelligences, can they do nostalgia or is that one area where they're not going to put creatives like you out of business? I mean, I, I think the piece I mean, I'm trying to think, like, is the piece nostalgic? I mean, I think the piece is, um, I think the piece is invested in just the difficult problem of even trying to remember the texture of daily life before the iPhone, right? I mean, to a certain degree, like, there's, there's Wikipedia and the question of historical memory, and then there's just trying to realize that it's very difficult, even for me as a writer, um, to, to try to like recapture imaginatively what it was like to, to drive across the country and encounter the swarm of Mormon crickets as the, as the piece opens um, without having made a cell phone video of it, right? So I, it, it's maybe less that the piece is nostalgic and more the piece is actually interested in the specific affordances of literature to be a technology of memory as opposed to Again, the flattening of the of the screen and the kind of perpetual present of ChatGPT. Um, look, I mean, I the, there's the problem here, right? I mean, you mentioned like sounding like kind of conservative. I mean, it's very hard, which I don't necessarily yeah, yeah. believe is a bad thing. I, I no, just... yeah. I mean, I think I don't. I don't think I certainly don't think of myself as politically conservative. I mean, I, I think of like, I, but I think of the great damage that the internet has done for all of its promises to the kind of left commitments that I'm so invested in. I think what the piece, I, I, I think it's, it's very hard to say something interesting about why the internet or why the, the, the cell phone are bad, right? It's like really hard just because all of us have the sense of the ignominy and degradation of our attention and interactions that are produced, um, by what Chuck D once a long time ago called the dumb assification of America as a result of kind of like clickbait and flattening and the low level addiction of posting and shit posting, et cetera, et cetera. So in, on the one hand, this piece is an attempt to recover while it's incredibly critical of my own 
fantasies about technology. It is just for all of its pessimism about certain kinds of technologies, it really is a celebration of the technology of the sentence. It really is a celebration of the technology of the essay to be able to keep alive a relationship to the world that isn't totally um, monopolized and colonized by the blue light of the screen or by whatever's happening online. And again, I think that's about attention, that is about a certain kind of human relation, but that's also about getting serious about the difference between online politics, which is not nothing, it matters, but is also not necessarily rearranging the power relations of the world. Um, so it's, it's a mixture of repudiation, thinking about the history of the internet and its relation to writing, but also really insisting on what a kind of careful literary prose might be able to make available to historical memory um, that the internet cannot.